Hello everyone, this is Attila Toad and welcome to the Cogniverse show, where I interview top marketing managers, CMOs, product owners and world-class digital experts to find out how they tackle the complex challenges of digital transformation, how they find the road of success and what are the tips and tricks they use to achieve outstanding results. In this episode, we have a great, but also very humble expert who I was really looking forward to discuss with. He's Paul Aston, who is the product owner of Volvo's open innovation platform and the lead technical designer at Volvo Cars in Sweden. He's passionate about finding new ways of using tech with a strong connection to digital, creative technology, teamwork, and lessons from user experience-driven pilots are the most important elements for him when exploring new horizons. From his vast experience, both as a developer and a service designer, Paul confirms the importance of customer-centric approach and brings in-depth technical knowledge to user-centered design thinking. He leads projects which involve innovative technologies, but he never works alone. He's a responsible and determined team leader driven by the motto, the only failure is to fail to learn. You can connect with Paul on LinkedIn. I will share his link in the show notes. Without further ado, please enjoy this great conversation with Paul Aston. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Um, before we dive deep into the topics, let's start with a bit of history. You had a fair share of working in both development and user experience design. What was your road to becoming a product owner? Hi, yeah, uh, thanks for having me for a start. Um, yeah, the the history, I suppose it's it's a long and varied one. Um, I mentioned the other day, one of the problems with getting older is uh, your, your short history seems to get longer and longer. Um, but yeah, how to uh, my path to becoming a product owner, um, especially in sort of a, a service design space. Uh, it started actually when I still lived in the UK. I was working for a company producing um, audio and multimedia guides for museums. Uh, and that was kind of the thing that really kicked off my interest in sort of digital interpretation and, you know, creating ways of communicating with users and developing new user experiences, uh, especially when we were in that transition phase from going from pure audio to what we could do with touch screens and the advent of the, the digital handheld. Um, from there, it was a, a shock, a big move. I uh, moved to Sweden. I'm married to a married to a Swede, and it seems to happen to us all eventually. Uh, since I moved here, I... It was kind of a chance to start fresh. So I set up my own consultancy, uh, producing apps. We did some interesting things working with um, offshore powerboat racing and some things like that. Uh, from there, uh, I started sort of to build a reputation as a, a front end developer. So got into a sort of a quite a really fun creative space doing a lot of uh, corporate sites for architects and photographers. From that, uh, as is very much the, the Gothenburg tradition, uh, I founded a startup with uh, a partner uh, who worked on that for about three years. And as is the way of about 90% of startups, it failed. Um, but the good thing with doing that is you learn an enormous amount. So off the back of that, I was offered a job working for a very cool little uh, digital service design agency in Gothenburg, a place called Humblebee. And when we were there, uh, my main role was to start working with this embryonic innovation team in Volvo. Uh, they decided to reach out and find external collaborators to try and get that outside in perspective. So it started off, I think it was six of us in a small meeting room and it was hot and stuffy and we had no windows and it got very fraught and angry. Um, and then we grew that to a team of around 30 people. Uh, and the way that we worked there is we, our work was based around design thinking. So it's very much, you know, take insight and input, generate a hypothesis and test it and validate it. Um, 
And with that work, we tend to sort of have, you know, someone be leading a particular project. We had a very flat management structure in the team, but there would always be a kind of a project lead who'd, you know, either it was their baby and they were ushering it through or, you know, they were the right person to, to see it through. Um, and so one of the, the concepts that came up was looking around uh, creating sort of um, an inno a digital innovation platform. We we like the idea of uh, a, like you know a classic developer portal. That, you know we make our APIs and digital tools accessible, but then how can we use that to accelerate innovation within the company? So that became my project, and I started to validate it. And the best way to validate something like that is to start running some small experiments. You know, start putting things out small, small tests just to make sure that sort of our our fundamentals were correct. We always talk about um, knowing the the fundamental unknown, uh, and if you can sort of answer, you know, that question, then you know you're onto a winner. So I started driving that on with the innovation portal, and it snowballed from there. You you get to a point where the the project clearly was going to work. We had really strong internal stakeholders, but for them to be able to kind of pin their flag to it and say, yes, we support this, that project needs a product owner. And that became me. I, I, I kind of fell in love with the project. It's been my baby now for a year. And so I decided I'm running it at pretty much running it anyway, I'm going to take full ownership of this. Um, and that's how it came to be. So now I'm the product owner on the, on the innovation portal. Wow. It's a really nice career path. So you basically started from scratch. You touched based on design, front-end development and worked on the ladder. And I really love how, how you put it that the startup failure was actually a learning because I think many people uh, think of digital as a straightforward to success and it surely it's not that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you, you put this on the table. I, I fully agree. I think one of the biggest, one of the, it's a phrase we always have is uh, the only failure is the failure to learn, um, especially with digital. We try if you're creating a new digital service, it will never be perfect the first time out. Uh, very often, you know, it'll be completely wrong the first time out. So you have you have to have these failures because it, it's a great learning. And it's not even necessarily a failure. It's we tried something. We understand that the audience does not like this, but we were clever with the way that we tried it. And we actually, we do understand what it is they would like instead. And then you can pivot, you can change. But you're right. I think people are, people are always scared of that failure, especially in a, a corporate environment, because then it's very much there is no plan B. We only you know plan A has to work. Whereas half the time with the way the me and my team like to work, I mean, we're down in plan H, J, K kind of thing, <laughs> territory. Right, right. I I think many corporations are, are still lacking this dedicated product owners in their teams. And uh, this is a sensitive question and I want to pick your brain on the topic. What do you think the reason is behind? Um, what was your experience with Volvo? And as you said, with, with other projects and maybe through the consultancy you had, uh, how, how did you face this challenge where there was no dedicated product owner? Yeah, it's it. I mean, it amazes me when there isn't one. It it seems like the most logical thing to have. Uh, when when you don't have that in place, I think the only way to really deal with it is you kind of you have to build almost build a stakeholder. There is there will be someone to who that project is key and is important, and that person should also be a subject matter expert in that project. Or in that product. So if, if you're working on the outside and you're coming to to a company who, who want to who have a desire for some kind of product or a service, but they have no dedicated product owner, you need to find the person that I think has the most to gain or has the most interest or the most engagement and almost sort of build them into that role, make them make them that person. 
Otherwise, uh, there is no single point of truth. And what will happen is you then end up with you know, the classic too many chefs where you get multiple inputs from multiple different teams with multiple different values and outcomes. And you just, you lose your focus. You, you have to have that sort of clear signed off understanding of exactly what it is that you need and that one person to direct that for you. Yeah, I think it's very important what you said that if there are too many inputs, you lose focus and you lose direction. So very good points here. Um, now as a, in our audience, we have a lot of business people who might not know what the product owner's job is. How would you define the role and responsibilities of a product owner? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think it, it I mean, the, you could say it, it will vary according to the product, but I think there are some core, core things you have to do. One, you have to be the evangelist for the product. You have to be the person in your company spreading the good word. You have to be out there saying, we are building this thing. It's going to be amazing. It, you know, there are benefits to it. Here are the clear benefits. Here is the value. So then you have a very clear communication across your entire company of what it is this product is. And hopefully, you know, generate some excitement. These are cool things. When a company is building something new, people should be excited. You're building product. That's what you're there for. So that's, that's kind of your top level. Um, underneath that, you then have to be that. I think I mentioned it in my earlier answer, that the single point of truth. So anyone can come to you, and it can be somebody who's in the development team. It could be someone who's from an external consultancy. It could be someone from senior management coming down, and they have a question. And you should, you know, they come to you and you have a very, you have the complete understanding and you can give the clear answer. Because the other part of what you're doing is you're the one that should be defining the strategy for this. And that's, that's a, a, a tricky one because you have to, you have the strategy for your product. You have to make sure that fits in with your overall corporate strategy. You need to be able to argue, um, argue why that makes sense. And so, you're driving that product on. And then that's, in a way, I often use the analogy of the swan. So that's kind of the surface level of it. That's where you're calm, you're collected, you're there showing sort of the public face of your product. Then underneath the water, you've got the legs frantically paddling because then you've got a team working with you who are building this project. So then you become kind of a, the, the ringmaster at a circus. You, know, you, you have to coordinate your different development teams you have to coordinate with ux you have to coordinate with marketing you need to make sure that everything is aligned you need to make sure that your development plan is going the right way and you also need to be making sure that you're testing and you're proving your assumptions because if you base what you're working on on a large assumption test it early on to make sure that you're right or be prepared to pivot um so i mean it's it's quite there's a lot to do but the main thing is just to be that person who believes in the project and the product, who understands the strategy, is able to communicate it clearly, and then is also able to facilitate a team to deliver the product without interference. Wow, it's a handful. Um, so if I want to sum it up in a business language, one of the main important things is that you have to be a leader uh, who takes responsibility for all, all of the outcomes. And this means you're the single point of truth. This means you are the one who has the arguments why this product is important for the corporation. And basically, you're the guy who is trying to answer all the questions. And even if you cannot answer, but you know the way you know the road uh, you you choose and you know what's the direction you are you are going forward with exactly cool um i'm just putting this on the table because um with covid19 uh we had um we are a digital transformation agency and we had a lot of questions coming in okay uh how do we create in this pandemic uh, an innovation that can facilitate growth 
And I think the role of a product owner is really important in, in digital growth, but uh, I would like to see your opinion. How do you see uh, the connection of, of being a product owner uh, with, with growth, especially digital growth? Well, uh, I think going back to what we spoke about uh, earlier, it's down, I think a lot of it comes down to understanding of strategy. It's it's the what drives a company onward, and I mean it, it can depend on the size of the company. Sometimes you, don't, uh, you have a small a small company who you know have one very clear goal to increase customers by one hundred and fifty percent. When you get to a sort of a, a large corporation, you you have a problem of various translation layers between what is communicated as the strategy and then what other leaders in the company, how they interpret the strategy. So as a product owner, what you need to do is understand understand what, um, what other leaders are thinking and how they, how they are interpreting the strategy that is laid out, how your product fits into that, and then be able to work with them to make sure that you're not you shouldn't ever be sort of stepping on somebody's toes. You shouldn't be getting in each other's ways. You should be able to work together to see, well, if we are, if you're doing X, I'm doing Y, how can we create a mutually beneficial outcome to this? Um, and especially for around digital growth, I mean, that's where it's super key that everyone works together because everything that you're working on should be complementary to your overall ambitions. So I think as a, as a project owner or a product owner, sorry, then yeah, it's, it's basically to make sure that you're, you're there to, again, you're there to facilitate. You're not there to block. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that idea to, to work with other people to, to not step on their toes and to help them, achieve their part of the strategy because many times uh, what we see is that uh, especially with corporations there are a lot of departments and a lot of uh, other leaders as you said who interpret in different ways the strategy and many times product owners have difficulties to fit in to somebody's strategy so I I'm really glad you you put it on this on the table that what your role is to find a way in the strategy that helps other people. So the product should be a facilitator of growth and not something that, that blocks it. Exactly. Um, and as, as we are talking about growth, I think there are two, two points. Um, one of the points is success and the other point is failure. Um, how would you define it in, in the perspective of being a product owner? Hmm. I mean, success is uh, very often um, difficult to quantify. I mean, we all dream of the, you know, the classic success is I release, let's say, a digital product and within a week I have 10,000 users. That's what we we all aim for. You know, we, we want to see users take take to our product and use it and be engaged with it. That that's, that's kind of the, the classic success formula. That's the dream. Uh, that's uh, it, oh, it is. Um, but you, I think what you have to do is look at, look at sort of your clock tick, look at how long this could take because whilst digital development can be very quick, sometimes the path to the product is very long. So I try and sort of celebrate small successes along the way all the time. Um, you know, it can be something as simple as we sent out a user survey and yeah, it would appear that 70% of respondents like our product. Great. That's, we tested and we validated a hypothesis. That is a huge success. Uh, the dev team have conquered um, a particular technical milestone. That is a success. Uh, sometimes it can just be, you know what, that we've we've had a quarterly review and I've successfully defended the product. That's a huge success. Um, and then once 
you get, you know, you celebrate all these small successes that keeps you going. That kind of gives you the energy you need to keep pushing for the, the finish line. Because the problem you have is you hit that finish line and you launch. And then you have the big success, the dream success of many users are engaging. Your job isn't over then. Your job is now, well, I've got 10,000 users. How do I increase that to 20,000? Um, I have feedback. I know I need to pivot. I need to change this. I have a, a you know, I have my development roadmap in front of me, and we have twelve more development cycles to plan. So you, you're never going to cross that finish line. You'll never go. Uh, there's never going to be a point where you sit down, brush your hands together, and go, "That's good. I'm done. That's a success." So I think it's a case of celebrating all successes in whatever order of magnitude. Uh, definitely launch days and good user numbers are days for champagne. Uh, the rest of the time, you know, it's raise a cup of tea and say cheers to the office. <laughs> um, but for failure, um, as I said, the only, uh, the way I see it is the only real failure is the failure to learn. So if I launch and I get, 10 users okay that's disappointing but my failure would be then to not know why i only have 10 users but if i can create my launch in a way where there's some kind of av testing or some way of being able to test a metric or it's a fact i have launched having made a decision between an a and a b and it didn't work then if i can understand why it didn't work and have an alternative and then be able to move on and test that and then refine that hypothesis. It's not a failure per se, it's just, it's a very good learning opportunity. And having these moments are great learning moments because if everyone just likes it and you don't get any feedback, it can be hard to improve. But if you have, you launch and there's a feature that everyone hates, then you know very, very quickly that, well, this is clearly not something that's going to work and you can feed that back into your development cycle. Um, so yeah, really, failure is when you just throw something out, it doesn't work, and you sit back and kind of scratch your head and go, huh, it must be the people who are wrong. Yeah, and I, I just want to dive deep a bit on this because I see many times happening that a corporation decides to have a digital project and I will I will tell you two, two scenarios and let me know if you can agree on that. So one scenario is that, as you said, they fail in the first week of, of the release and then they stop. Okay, it's the people, it's the market, and it's it's not for us. Digital is not for us. So that's that's option A. Option B is um, that they have a success, like let's say they have 10,000 users within the first six weeks, but then something changes and they stop growing and they cannot explain it because they didn't have any previous tests, uh, any failures, and they are just blocked and, and they are again blaming the market or blaming the people. So I think it's really important to think as failure, as you said, as learning to do it constantly. And actually, uh, it, it's kind of counterintuitive, but uh, be happy for some failures because uh, you have some data, you have some feedback from the market. And that's really a gold value nowadays. Absolutely. And I mean, if you think about how much you can spend on a on a market research or a user testing agency, why not? You know, in some ways, it can be better to just spend that money and build and put to the market and get that you know get that learning yourself. And I think that's something else in there that's I think very interesting is when you're dealing with a company that hasn't tried digital before, you have to make sure that you educate as you go. So. Never, you know, you can, you should never be saying, well, of course, we'll build this and it will be amazing. You say, we'll build this. This is our first iteration. This is our best guess. But think, you know, it may not work. We may, you know, there is every chance we will need to change. The, the process is iterative. Be prepared for iterations because otherwise I think you're, you're, it's almost you're mis-selling the product. 
Um, there, there is no such thing as a surefire winner. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I think uh, with this current situation with COVID-19, uh, it was kind of like an eye-opener for many companies that it's it's time to think of digital products. Uh, but also on the other hand, uh, what I experienced is that many companies are not aware of what's happening behind and they are expecting just, just immediate results. Um, in your case, how did uh, this pandemic affect your responsibilities? What threats, challenges and what kind of opportunities do you see on the horizon um, in your area of responsibility? Uh, I mean, within within my personal sphere, I think I'm. I was. I don't want to use the term lucky because it was an absolute. What's happened has been a horrible thing, and there there is no luck in there. It's. It was more. I was fortunate in how things were. Let's put it that way. Um, the product that I'm working on is very is already about taking um, services and digital products direct to consumers and and businesses as well and doing it in a way where we actually remove a quite a large element of human inter human interaction overhead so in terms of releasing um our apis for example as public you we are creating um digital gateways we're creating account handling we're uh creating a legal framework that can be dealt with online uh previously uh, the path would often be we would meet a company, we would put together a, a partnership agreement. There would often be a little, quite a lot of face-to-face, -face, which these days is obviously very tricky. Um, and we were already working to remove that. So if anything, I think it, it just reinforced uh, our argument that you know, we, people shouldn't have to come to us and find us. We should be reaching out to people to show them how easy it is to to start uh, interacting with and using the Volvo Digital Toolbox without necessarily having to come and find a Volvo person, as it were. Um, I mean, we just recently, we did a very, we've done a super, super early alpha release of uh, a concept called uh, Director Vehicle, where this is part of a larger ongoing project where we're enabling service providers, businesses to um, connect with a Volvo owner's car and find its location, interact with it, flash the lights, sound the horn, and unlock it, uh, all without needing a key or needing to meet the owner. Uh, so this immediately we saw it. This is a way that we can start creating like a, a kind of a contactless future, which is beyond contactless payment or something like that. You know, we can people can still fulfill services. Um, around a vehicle without having to in any way meet or interact with the driver. You know, there's no handover of a, a car key where you'd want to spray it down with like you know, hand disinfectant or something. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, in, in my sphere, I think it, 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 it was just a reinforcement of what we were looking at. Uh, I mean, Volvo as a whole has already started to move towards direct-to-consumer. So we have uh, Care by Volvo, where you subscribe to a vehicle. You don't need to go to a dealership. You go online, you choose your car, you click order. Everything's taken care of. And then you can go and pick up your car. And we have a digital key. So you can use your digital key to unlock your car if you want. And there are a couple of great initiatives where we did more on that, you know, trying to bring as much of the physical Volvo into the digital space. So users could find and play with those. Uh, I work with an amazing guy who does uh, a lot of work pushing our VR space. And this is something that's going to be very interesting to explore as well, I think, in the future, is we, we can create a virtual showroom. You, you can you know, put on your headset, and in your living room, you can explore your potential new car. So all these things were already kind of coming along. And then we had this pandemic, which reinforced this sense that, well, perhaps people you know, are stepping away from traditional bricks and mortar. Um, but going back to my role, I mean, if, you, if you'd like a, a, 
a challenge in there. I think the biggest challenge for me was the human element of my team because we all quarantined at home. We're all working from home. We're disconnected on a, a personal level. So again, as I mentioned earlier about being a product owner, one of the things you do is look after your team. You, you want to lead them and leading your team uh, when you don't see them face to face becomes quite an interesting experience. Uh, you you lose, uh, I can put it, a level of, it's almost like you can lose a level of empathy because you're not there in the room with them. So a lot, of the, a lot of my work has been around finding ways to try and make sure we stay connected, so we stay engaged, you know, maintain our, our team culture, which has always been really important to us, and maintain those the social bonds that made us such uh, an effective team. Cool. Um, I'm really curious because I think many companies are facing th these kind of challenges. If you can share any ideas, what do you do to maintain this social element of teamwork? A um, couple of good things. I mean, we, we tend to be very active on Slack, which is really good just for being really stupid. Um, and that was kind of the what we pushed for in the end was um, one of the problems you get into is you you can just follow your your usual daily routine and you just do it digitally, but then you you miss the people. And we always have a daily stand up, and that's always kind of been you know it's a very key part of our culture. But what it always tended to be was daily stand up, and then we'd hang out and talk. So I got rid of the usual stand up rules rather than what are you working on what have you worked on what are your blockers we just do a daily topic so the first couple of days it it can be anything from you know what's your favorite life hack uh, show us a picture that's hanging in your house and tell us about it um, what's your favorite recipe then we do a work an, an official work check-in in the middle of the week and then we do uh, kind of again social questions talking to each other the rest of the time And then any problems, queries, or anything like that tend to get filtered through via Slack, where you can then pick it up and do with it as needed or take kind of little breakout sessions. And then at the end of the day, that's when we do like a written stand down where we talk about the work we've done. Everyone will be taking note. We get screenshots and we see little videos of cool things. And I've actually found it's been super effective. And the... The morning stand-up where we hang and connect with each other is, a, I've got to be honest, it's a real high point of my day. It gives me a huge sort of energy boost. And it's just so nice to see, you know, see everyone's faces, have a laugh, have a joke, and connect with them. I love that. Product owners who are listening to, to this, copy-paste this idea because I think it's, it's really brilliant. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you. Um, Going back a bit to the open innovation platform, uh, I know it's a new thing. Uh, could you tell us a bit more? What's your role in it and uh, what's, what's the future of it? Uh, well, my, as I said, my role is, it, it's been taking it from the, an embryonic, we think this could be a good idea, how do we prove it? Through to, we have now launched, um, Again, a very small. It was a it was a soft social launch, um, just trying to test the waters on something early, given the the situation we're in. But what I've done is I've started from scratch, did the initial research, looked into you know benchmarking what are developer portals, what do people want to engage with, looking in internally into the company, you know, what what do we have to offer, and also. I think quite crucially for our project is we're looking very much at and what can we offer to the people within the company? Because very often you have a developer portal and it's the, the flashy front end of a company. And then their own developers are still scrabbling around with poor documentation trying to find things. So we're making sure that the internal part of this is just as good and just as polished as the external part. Um, and so, yeah, I've just worked very small steps taking it through the, sort of the, the initial concept we did a super small uh test launch of a single page at a, a hackathon we ran where we just pulled together together some cool digital tools put it out at the hackathon so people would just find it 
monitored and had analytics all over it so we could really get a sense of how people used it and that was a really one of our first really good kind of learnings and then i worked with again working with um, our strategy guys to understand what it is that the company is hoping to achieve trying to formulate exactly what it is that i would like to achieve with this and then looking at all the other product streams we have because uh, i think one of the big challenges with this is being a the portal we don't own the products we're not creating apis to make public we're not creating 3d models we're not creating an android automotive uh, emulator what we're doing is we're working with the teams who are creating these and trying to facilitate the best possible way for them to expose them um, so a lot of alignment with those guys and sort of Sometimes it's kind of the, the the gentle nag of, you said this would be ready last week. How are you getting on? I'd really like to get something out. Is this possible? Uh, to other teams, it's been maybe even more hands-on of, okay, you're blocked. We need to do this. How can we help? What can what can we contribute to, to get this product out? So that's taken us to where we are now, where we're coming into the Swedish uh, summer holiday. Uh, for those that don't know, Sweden has a tradition of the industrial holiday. So at the beginning of June, all of the factories would close for four weeks. So everybody was guaranteed a holiday. And this is a tradition that is carried on. It's, it's, it's almost like um, a, a Swedish human right that you will take this long summer vacation, uh, which means that we now are very much Caused. Nothing will happen until we get back. Um, so my work up until the summer was get the small launch out, and then a lot of work to line us up for coming at, coming out of the vacation time. Uh, and then that's when it's going to get super exciting for us. I think that's when we have, if you like, uh, our big launches. Uh, we're going to probably start with 3D and Simulator, which is just the most incredible tool set. Uh, working with Unity where you will be able to download uh, a model of the car, interact with it, uh, put it into any of your own projects. Uh, you can pretty much do whatever you want with this Volvo. It's, it's super cool. Uh, after that, we will have the Android automotive emulator. So using Android Studio, you'll be able to develop um, in-car apps and preview them and test them on an interface that looks just like um, that in a Volvo car. And then after that, we will have the first launch of our public APIs. And so then people will be able to access the APIs that we use in the company and use them for their own projects. Mm -hmm. Really futuristic. I, I, I love how you think it. And I think Volvo is, is ahead of many corporations in, in working with digital and and thinking futuristically because i see there are many brands out there who are just now thinking to tap into digital they might have used it some way but as you said strategically it's not yet on the table so so congratulations for that how would you advise management boards and key stakeholders to think of digital products? Mm, good question. Uh, I think my first, first thing I would say is digital is not the answer to all of your problems. Uh, I've come up a few times with uh, companies where they, they seem to sort of think that by going digital, in some way, then that is what the market demands and this will solve all of their problems. That's a, a real fallacy. I think what you, the way you should, you should think of digital, digital products is it's part of your toolbox and it can be a solution to a problem, but you need to identify the right problem and then make sure that digital is the right solution for that problem. Uh, I think it's we've seen a lot of companies that rush headlong into some kind of transformation without understanding why. They just feel that they should. I think it's far better to take you know, take a core problem and then test it and evaluate it. See see what um, 
see what works for you and then build on that but build on a solid foundation now if it's something like you know for your uh, traditional manufacturer and you sell to retailers well perhaps the thought might be well now is the time to go uh, direct to consumer so then test something simple with direct to consumer and then build it if that doesn't work then perhaps digital is the wrong solution for that particular problem but then re, you know, revisit, adapt, understand what it is you need to do and then come back to it. I completely agree with you. I think first you need to have a strategy before you invest any euros or any pounds um, in digital because otherwise you might just, as you said, rush into a project which will not have the ROIs what you're expecting. So strategy is key here and you and usually business decision makers don't see behind the curtains of creating digital products and only see the success <laughs> and usually the success of the competition or the success of other brands or scale-ups or startups uh, but we already discussed uh, on failure but if you could share maybe some darkness let's go a bit to the dark side <laughs> what was one of the toughest setbacks you ever experienced? Oh, toughest setbacks. Mm, that's a that's a good one. I would say, uh, yeah, I would say the toughest setback I've ever had was some time ago in previous projects realizing i had completely failed to get any kind of stakeholder or even internal buy-in to the product i was working on um so working in a way where i was we were looking at a problem and when this is we have an obvious solution this is the way to do it we will work on this and then, of course, when we present it, we will be the heroes who have solved this problem. So there was a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of people power invested in something. And then we came along and the response was very much, one, we didn't ask for this. Two, why are you working on this? There are three other teams working on similar things. Also, who are you? Because we haven't met you in any part of this process. And what are you doing here? <laughs> and so what we thought would be, you know, the, the grand triumph was actually um, a very damp squib and actually created some bad feeling with a couple of, uh, couple of important people in the company. And that was a, a very valuable lesson to learn. Um, always, always, always engage in the process make sure you have people who know what you're doing who are bought into it and also make sure that what you're building is actually wanted wow thanks for the openness i think from these stories we can learn the most and the audience can definitely learn from from these lessons because this is kind of like uh, a typical example in the corporate world of a mistake what is usually done in the startup world where startups don't share their ideas with any anybody not even the market sometimes and they believe they're working on something great and then when they put it on the table then nobody really wants it so thanks for sharing this i i, I didn't hear any similar story uh, in the corporate world, but uh, yes, it could be a real setback. Yeah, it it it's it was a a, a humble a humbling and a good learning experience. But mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a classic mistake. You know, don't uh, I think we, as you say, with too often we tend to do that thing of here. I have this idea. This idea is great. I must protect my idea. If I tell someone my idea, they will take it from me. But it's actually the opposite. If you have a good idea and you share it and people like the idea, people will very often support you and your idea and help you along the way. 
And then these people will also get a sense of shared ownership. It almost it can become open source. And so then it isn't just one person working on a product. It's it's a team of people. You you almost create, you know, sort of a family around it. And so that product will always have so much better support. So, you know, don't play your cards close to your chest. Play with transparency and you you will go much further. Thank you for that. Uh, but hey, let's not talk only about the negative. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what would be an accomplishment that, that made you really proud and uh, how did you achieve it? Oh, um, an accomplishment that made me really proud. But I, it's difficult because, I mean, my background as a developer means that I'm never happy with anything that I launch. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I sometimes struggle a bit to sort of really look at something with clear eyes and go, that's, that's great. Um, so what I, what I would actually say is right now, what I am incredibly proud of is the developer portal. And I, that is because I'm very proud of the team that I've worked with. Everyone who's been involved with the process has been fantastic. Um, it's been you know, a real pleasure to work with all of these guys and the energy and the creativity and also just pure competence. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's pride in my work, but I'm very proud of a lot of people I've worked with. I'm, I'm proud on their behalf. And the fact that we, you know, we've got over that milestone, of, especially in corporate, where we've launched something in a public.com domain, yeah, that right now I'm, I'm insanely proud of. Thanks, thanks for sharing. And just to give a guidance for, let's say, upcoming product owners, or why not product owners who are already working on projects, um what what is the path of success so what are the steps you usually take to make sure you're heading in the right direction oh i would say first things first start with insight insight can be pure data it can be market research it can be sort of socio-ethnographic studies um or it can even you know be trend analysis that you do yourself but anchor anchor your thinking in reality or at least the best version of reality that you can find and understand so start with the solid base and then build up from that understand and always understand what is the problem i'm solving or what is the question that i am asking with this product because it's very easy to kind of you see, well, I think this will work. And I see from studies that there, there is a gap in the market for this thing. And then you start building and you go, it's so easy to get deep into it. And you start building, you know, conceiving features and flow and everything. And before you know it, you're building. We always talk about the, the fundamental unknown. What is that, that keystone? of your concept there's going to be something in there that you is kind of it's your first big assumption test that first get get to trying that out in the cheapest quickest easiest way possible before going any further so think in terms of steps of experiment rather than okay what do i need to do to build this product out so test test this the primary unknown make sure you're building on a solid foundation. Then what is the next thing that you need to test and make sure you are correct on? Because you're gonna be working on a few assumptions. So build, build in a way that allows you to test each of these assumptions and make sure that each time you test, if you're correct, great, keep going. If you're wrong, understand why and pivot. So that way, by the time you, you get to some kind of release, you're built on, the, on the most solid foundation you, you can have, um, you still may be operating under some assumptions, but at least it's your best possible guess based on your best possible insight. So a lot of iterations, basically that should be part of your strategy, right? A absolutely. Um, and you know, always make sure that you are testing. Um, if, if you just have pure belief, that will take you so far, but then that, 
belief often becomes a pro one of those products that is released, gets 10 users and has someone sitting there going, well, clearly the, the public are wrong. This is fantastic. Mm -hmm. now, do your due diligence. Cool. Cool. I, I love how you put this process and thanks for the guidance. I just want to tap a bit into the details here in terms of what is your process of connecting creativity with technology and how do you keep a business driven focus? Because I see on one hand, many creative people who just can't really connect first with technology and can't move forward. And then even if they connect it, then they usually are losing focus and not serving a business problem anymore. So do you have any recommendations on this? I would say the key thing is your team. You want to, you want to be cross-disciplinary. Um, if you have a digital project, a product, it shouldn't just be a room of developers. And it shouldn't be one of those instances where you start with a UX and a designer who come up with something and then give it to the devs to build and then just sort of leave it. And also, it should definitely not be a, a purely business-driven uh, product design because then, <laughs> then it could get very messy and ugly. So have a team who work from the very beginning of the project who come from all disciplines. So you know, we, we often start with a design sprint and in that design sprint, we will have UX design, we'll have tech. We will also have um, a business designer or somebody who understands building the business model. And so from that, what you're able to generate is we have our, our sort of our you know, our, that classic sort of uh, design sprint initial prototype that you want to test. But we will also have an underpinning where we have a clear hypothesis of what we believe. We will have our value exchange. We will have a break, some kind of breakdown of you know, what's the value proposition in all of this. And then underneath that, with all of those things, we have what are our unknowns in tech, what are our unknowns of user, what are our unknowns in business. And then that's then when we get into that process of beginning to iterate and, and test these things. I think if you try and divide it up or sort of do one bit at a time, it will never work. You need to start by getting all these guys in a room. Then you can kind of break it out a little bit to make sure you've you focus on those areas, but then it should always be sort of, you know, expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, and everyone coming together to work together on it. Um, otherwise, otherwise, one of those elements will fall through. Um, that would probably be, I'd say the, again, it's not a guaranteed path to success, but it's, it's a really good foundation for it. Fully agree. So having different perspectives, different mindsets, different expertise already involved from, from day zero, it's, it's critical. Thanks. Thanks for putting it so nicely. Good. Um, now let's play a bit of a sci-fi game. Um, if you would be able to jump ahead 10 years in the future, what would you see? What would you be doing? Ooh, well, let me see. It's what a if we say what I'd be doing right now, ten years in the future. So we're we're speaking, and it's one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I would imagine um, it's going to be one of two. Right now, it'd be one of one of two potential scenarios. One would be I'll be at home, and I'd probably uh, I'd be working. I think something we've learned now is that. Um, Remote working is really not a problem, even for large corporations. Um, so my my office is going to be anywhere where I have a strong, stable internet connection. Um, and I think the lines will have blurred significantly between work-life balance, um, between the, the meanings of specific buildings and um, spaces. Uh, we right now, you know, you 
it used to be that you you live in your house, you get in your car, you go to your office, and then you go backwards. I think now we'll just be moving through the environment, and at particular times of the day, that may be a time when we are working. And I could be doing work-related things in my home, from my car, or from my office. Likewise, I could be taking care of life admin, and it just so happens it's more convenient that I'm doing it from the office. Um, so I think we will see, we'll see much more of a, a blurring of lines, I would like to think, and that's going to have some significant societal changes. We, we There's a lot of talk around things like autonomous drive, where, well, the car now becomes kind of a, a liminal space. I'm, I'm in the car, but I'm not actively driving. What do I do during this, this transition period? Uh, and so much has been done about will the work, you know, the car will become a workplace or it will become an entertainment center. Um, it will become something other than it is. And I think what we should be doing is looking at well, it's not just the car, everything will have that sort of transitionary, transitionary shift into becoming a space other than it was originally, um, originally seen. Uh, what will I see? What I'm, Okay, 10 years is maybe a little too soon for it, but what I would like to think I see is more green, uh, potentially, uh, I don't want to say less vehicles on the road because I work for an OEM, but vehicles moving in a way that is purposeful and meaningful. And I say that meaning a personal vehicle is only used about 10% of its life actually to be driven the rest of the time it sits. So perhaps you'll be subscribing to your subscribing to freedom to move but you'll be doing it in a way where you don't own and sort of have a specific uh, lump of metal sitting on your driveway i think we'll, there'll be greater work done on the environment i think we're starting to hit some of our global sustainability goals and so i actually think that we'll be starting to see a world where the ravages of the last few decades are starting to be reversed and Large corporations will be taking responsibility for their part, but also people will be taking responsibility and it will become it will just be part of the everyday. That's my hope at least. Kind of I, I love the idea of, you know, um the bright, shiny, uh, cubic esque kind of white technology future. But what I actually think we will be leaning more towards, hopefully, is a more natural, cleaner, brighter future. Hmm. I love that. I think it's a great vision and uh, one vision definitely uh, worth living for. So yeah, it's it's a great, great thing to uh, think of. And as we are closing to the end of our discussion, I would have just one final question. If you had just one advice for enterprise businesses, for corporations, about digital product development, what would that be? Let me think. Uh, one advice for enterprise business for digital product development would, would it be? My one piece of advice would be, do not necessarily think that you can do it yourself and just Elevate internally somebody who would then take it on as a challenge. It, that it, it is very much a time to take a step back, look outside in, and think that you should be you should bring in a subject matter expert in digital product development. You should bring in a team with experience. And then what you should do is set them up to fail and fail often and fully support it without necessarily trying to enforce traditional business development methodology with them. Well, Maybe that was two pieces of advice, but it <laughs> rolled into one. I think that's a great closing note. Thanks for that, Paul. I really appreciate your inputs. You're one of the few guys who really likes to experiment and lead by example. A great role model for product owners. 
Thanks for joining the show. Happy to share. If you want to read more on similar topics, please subscribe at think.cognitivecreators.com to the Cogniverse blog, where I share relevant insights on creating real business value through digital, how artificial intelligence can assist digital growth, and how business transformations are carried out through revolutionary digital technology. These are all real-life examples, learnings, and insights that matter and can make a difference in your journey towards digital. With that said, I hope you enjoyed this episode and keep being persistent on your digital activities. Until next time, bye-bye.